The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. I see that some people may not have gotten the message that we only had one service today, um, but that's okay. Delighted to see you all here. I hope that you will remain for the annual meeting. I emphasize that because I know that some annual meetings can be a bit of a bore. I'll never forget what Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison once told me. He said, if you want to see hell on earth, just go to an annual parish meeting from which the Holy Spirit has withdrawn himself. So <laughs> we're praying that that is not the case today, um, but we have some very exciting things that we think that you will be blessed by. So I hope that you will make it a priority and come and hear what is on the offing in the near future at St. Philip's. But today we are continuing our study of John's Gospel, and we are in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 22 and following, so if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them. As I've said before, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have a different translation. That's perfectly fine, whether it's the NIV or the RSV or even the King James. They're all fine translations, but this is the translation that we use here at St. Philip's and the one I'll be reading from. So John chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who is the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now you'll recall that last week we took a look at the great miracle that Jesus performed in the presence of the multitudes. We said it was the only miracle that is recorded, that Jesus performed that is, the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, that was obviously something that deeply impressed the people. Uh, this was, an, as I said, an agrarian culture. Uh, food was a precious thing. 
And here was one who was able to take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed this vast crowd, probably in excess of 5,000 people. And after Jesus had done that then, we're told that the people were so enthralled with him that they had a desire to make him a king. It's interesting, while all four of the Gospels record this, each of them give us a slightly different perspective on these events. It's John who tells us that they wanted to make him a king, and that's why Jesus departed from that place and made his disciples get into the boat and pass to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Interestingly enough, it's also John who tells us where they were going. They were going to Capernaum. The other Gospels are silent on that fact, but John tells us they were going to Capernaum. And you'll recall that while they were making their way across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray. They got caught in a violent storm. It was probably a windstorm, um, but as I pointed out last week, those sorts of things are not uncommon on the Sea of Galilee. They still occur with great frequency even today. Now, the good news is that if you get caught on one of these storms out on the Sea of Galilee today, you're in a boat with a motor. That was not the case for the disciples as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, which at some points is as much as seven miles across. So they're making their way out there. They got caught in this terrible storm. Uh, the wind was against them. No doubt they were filled with fear and anxiety, and we're told that Jesus, seeing them in distress, came to their rescue, and he came walking on the water. Now that is recorded in three of the four Gospels, and in those three Gospels, again, details vary a little bit. We get a little more in Matthew than we do in John and elsewhere, and one of the reasons we get more in Matthew is that Matthew tells us that Jesus, as he came walking on the water, saw that the disciples were panicked. They thought he was a ghost, and Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's I, and that's when Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come, and you know the story. Peter gets out of the boat, begins to walk on the water, until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the wind and the waves and panics, and as he does, he begins to sink. Now, that's not in John's version. It's in Matthew's version, but it's a wonderful story. And it teaches us a number of things as well. I pointed out last week that the story of the disciples in peril on the Sea of Galilee teaches us, at the very least, that we are all going to face storms in life. I pointed out to you last week that every single one of us is in one of three places. You're either in a storm right now, some of you are, or you've just come out of a storm or you are heading into a storm. Now, that may seem rather gloomy, but that's just the realities of life. Nobody escapes the storms of life. And let's be honest, there is one great storm that none of us avoid, and that is death. We all are going to face that at one point or another. But the good news is that Jesus is always watching. He was watching his disciples. And one of the things I love about that story about Peter is that as Peter is sinking beneath the surface, you know, it's very easy to be very critical of Peter and say, well, there's Peter. He just took his eyes off Jesus and he looked at the circumstances. He looked at the wind and the waves and that's why he began to sink. And that's a good lesson. We should never do that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus to be sure. But sometimes we think, oh, that Peter, he just never gets it right. But Peter did get it right on this occasion because we're told that just as he was about to slip beneath the surface, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter knew enough when the storms of life strike to cry out to the Lord. 
And we're told that when he did, Jesus took him by the hand and brought him into the boat. I want you to know that that's what God will always do. That is the prayer that God always answers in the affirmative. When you cry out, Lord, save me, that is the one prayer that God will always answer quickly and in the affirmative. Well, at any rate, what happens is that Jesus gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're told that when he got into the boat, lo and behold, they found themselves arriving on the opposite shore at Capernaum, their destination. That too, I suppose, is a lesson for us that when we entrust ourselves to God, he always takes us where he wants us to be. Jesus had put them into the boat and told them to go to Capernaum. They ran into difficulties and storms, but ultimately Christ got them to their destination safe and sound. It's a powerful lesson for you and for me when we find ourselves in peril. Well, at any rate, when they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they discover that the crowds are beginning to make their way around the Sea of Galilee and across the sea in boats in order to get to Jesus. Apparently what happened was in the morning, in the aftermath of the storm, the crowds go looking for Jesus. And why not? I mean, it's breakfast. I mean, he provided them with supper. It's now breakfast, and where is he? And they can't find him. They go down to the lakeshore. Apparently they recognize that he had put his disciples into the boat, but he had remained behind. And so now they came looking for him. They can't find him anywhere. They see that the, the boats have been driven in from the storm, so they know that Jesus had not gotten into the boat. They scour the area. They can't find Jesus anywhere. And somebody says he must have gone to the other side, and so they pass to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, get into the boats, row furiously to the other side in order to find Jesus. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. Let's just go ahead and look at Jesus' response when he sees the crowd. You would have thought that Jesus would have been thrilled that these people were so excited that they were following him at such, with such effort. But look at what we see. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea and saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And I think that's, as an aside, I think that's important. Um, the other versions say, when and how did you get here is basically what the Greek implies. How, how, did, how in the world did you get here? Because we know you didn't get into the boat. Nobody thought that he walked across the sea. Nobody anticipated that, of course. Now, this is one of those miracles that has come under a great deal of criticism by skeptics and by liberal scholars who will say, well, it wasn't really. We have to somehow explain this away. Um, and there have been all kinds of ingenious explanations over the centuries. Some people have argued that actually the disciples were not far away from the land at all in the midst of the storm. And when they saw Jesus, Jesus was actually walking near the, the, the shoreline and the waves were so choppy that it gave the appearance that he was walking on water. Come on. This very passage indicates to us that the people were astonished by the fact that Jesus made it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There was no natural explanation for the fact that he had passed from one shore to the other. 
Now, I simply say that because I want you to understand that if you have a problem with the miraculous, you are going to have a problem with Christianity, period. You're going to have a problem with it. This idea that Jesus took five loaves of bread, two small fish, and fed 5,000 people. This was not just the spirit of generosity rising in the hearts of people who brought their sack lunches and decided, well, now look at this little boy. He's so generous. We ought to follow his example. And everybody opened up their sack lunches and shared, and everybody had enough. That's one of the other explanations that people have given. Nor is it a case where Jesus was simply walking on the water because he knew where the stumps were. These are miracles, and they shouldn't surprise us. We're dealing with the Lord of glory. We're dealing with the one who created the heavens and the earth. If you think about it in that way, if you think about God creating the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer power of his word, walking on water, raising people from the dead, listen, that's child's play. So understand, these are miraculous events They are a testimony to Christ's character and to his power and his identity as the Son of God. Well, at any rate, they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They ask this question, how in the world did you get here? But look at Jesus' response. He said, I tell you the truth. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Searching for Jesus. That's what the people were doing. And as I said, you would have almost anticipated that Jesus would have been proud of them. That Jesus would have commended them for seeking after him. There are many people in the world, I suppose, who don't seek after Jesus Christ. At least these people were seeking after him. Very much like Nicodemus. You'll recall that Nicodemus, earlier in this gospel, in John chapter 3, had come to Jesus. He'd come under the cover of darkness, to be sure, because he didn't want the other Pharisees to know that he was coming. But he came... He came because he saw something in Jesus that he wanted, that he longed for. And so he came to Jesus. But you'll recall that when he came knocking on Jesus' door in the middle of the night, Jesus' response to him was curious. Jesus didn't say, well, good for you, Nicodemus. I'm so glad that you came. I was hoping you'd come. I wanted to have a conversation with you. Let's sit down and talk about it. No, Jesus cuts right through it all. He knows exactly what's going on in Nicodemus' heart. And he knows that this is no time for small talk. He says to him, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as though he's saying, look, Nicodemus, I know why you're here. I know why you're coming, and let's just get right to it. And there is a sense in which Jesus does the same thing with the crowds on this occasion. Truly, I say to you, I know why you're here. I know why you're making such an effort to find me. I can't get away from you people. I know what you want. You're seeking me because I satisfied you physically. But don't search for the things that satisfy only physically, but search for that bread which comes down from heaven and which can satisfy you for eternity. 
The problem, of course, for the people was not that they were seeking Jesus. That is commendable. The problem is their motive in seeking Jesus. Why were they searching for Jesus? It's because of what Jesus could do for them. That's why they were seeking him. And he knew it. And he called them on it. Now, you might think to yourself, well, is there anything necessarily wrong with that? Don't we, as human beings, have needs? And aren't we told to bring our needs to the Lord? Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him, your fears, your worries. Peter certainly cried out to Jesus as he was about to go beneath the waves because he needed something. So is there anything wrong with telling people that Christ came to meet their needs? And shouldn't we preach that Christ has come to meet their needs and that they will find their needs met in him? Well, there's nothing wrong with that at all, provided that we understand that it's not the stuff that Christ is able to provide for us that will truly satisfy our souls. See, that was the problem for the people. They were thinking only in terms of what was going to satisfy them physically. And oftentimes we do precisely the same thing. Oh, Lord, I need a little more money this month. Oh, Lord, I need that promotion. And so we seek Jesus. It's true. And we have these needs or these perceived needs. And we seek Jesus and we want them. But what we really need and what Jesus wanted these people to understand was what they really needed was him. They needed him, not merely what he was able to provide for them. They needed the person of Jesus Christ himself. If you've been in the Romans class this past week, I talked a little bit about the fact that in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew people entered the promised land, the land was divided up. And each one of the 12 tribes received an allotment of the land. Now, there were still pagan people living on the land, and they were told that they had to go and drive out their enemies and take possession of it, but they were given an allotment of land. Every tribe except one, the tribe of Levi. Those who were of the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe, did not get an allotment of land. Do you remember what they got as an inheritance? They received the Lord himself. The Old Testament says the Lord would be their portion. Let me ask you the question. Are you satisfied with just Jesus? Is he enough for you? Or is it what Jesus is capable of doing for you? It's what Jesus is capable of providing for you that you seek. See, Jesus knew very well that he could feed these people again. He knew that. But he also knew that they were going to be hungry. That's why they were there. He'd fed them the night before, and they ate until they were completely satisfied. There were 12 baskets full left over. You know how it is. It's like Thanksgiving dinner. You push yourself away from the table, and you cannot eat another bite. You ever have that experience on Thanksgiving? You do, oh my goodness, I can't eat another bite. Gluttony is one of the seven deadlies and you're guilty. 
and, and you think if you eat another thing, you're going to explode. And then three hours later, you're pulling it all back out of the refrigerator and putting it in the microwave for round two. <laughs> that's how it works, isn't it? Well, that's exactly the way it was for these people. And so Jesus says to them, look, don't work for that food which is going to come into your mouth, go out your bodies, and you're going to be hungry again. I am capable of giving you that bread which will satisfy you for eternal life. You'll never be hungry again. It's something similar to what he said to the woman at the well. When he came and she, he said, give me a drink, and she said, you don't have anything to draw with. And Jesus said, woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking him for a drink, and he would give you water which would well up inside of you for eternal life. That's what Jesus was saying to these people. Stop looking and working for those things that are going to satisfy you for a time. That new car is going to satisfy you for a time until the manufacturer changes the model. And then you're going to like, I want that new model. And we go through this over and over again in our lives, don't we? But St. Augustine was right. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. He is really what we long for. And if Jesus Christ is your portion, what you will discover is that even if you have nothing else, you can be fully satisfied for eternity. And that's what Jesus wanted these people to understand. So he said... Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread which comes down from heaven. Now, they ask an interesting question. The question is this. You can find it there in verse 28. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? All right. It's almost as though they're thinking to themselves, okay, all right. He's making us jump through the hoops. We've come looking for him. Now he's telling us that we shouldn't be striving for that food that does not satisfy, but, but for that which does satisfy, not for a time, but for all eternity. And they're still thinking in terms of their physical satisfaction. They're thinking he's the only one that could do it. Obviously, he could take whatever we have, our meager resources, and multiply them. So, all right, Jesus, you want us to jump through the What do we have to do? You know, it's a typical American question, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. If we want something, we will say, all right, what's the price? T tell me, just tell me what I got to do. I'll do it. You ever been in that place? I know a man who once wanted a house. It was a house. Uh, he lived in Beaufort. And um, there was this house on the water, and he wanted the house. And he went up and knocked on the door and said, I want to buy your house. And the person said, it's not for sale. And he said, everybody has a price. What do you want? Tell me your price. Give me a price. The person gave him a price, and he bought it. And that's often the way we do. So these people come to Jesus. Jesus says, look, stop. I know why you're here, but you're looking for the wrong thing. Look for the bread that satisfies forever. Okay, we get it. What must I do? Tell me what I've got to do to get this bread which will satisfy me, not for a time, but for eternity. And then Jesus answers. And in many ways, this is a golden sentence that Jesus gives. This is a beautiful response. 
And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. To do the works of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. What do you have to do in order to find true satisfaction in this life? Jesus says, what you must do is believe on him whom the Father has sent. Are you looking for satisfaction today? Are you looking for peace, for contentment? Are you looking for that which will satisfy your soul, not just for a season, not just for a few years, but for eternity? That if you have that, you need nothing more. It's like the old hymn says, feed me now and evermore. Feed me till I want no more. Then what you must do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the follow-up question that everybody wants to know is, and what else do I have to do? And the answer to that is, there's nothing else to do. Salvation comes by one means only, and that is by believing, trusting, wholly and completely in Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. There's a powerful picture of this in the book of Acts where Paul and his traveling companion find themselves arrested. They're in Philippi. They have been preaching the gospel They got into trouble with the authorities about a slave girl and casting out demons and that sort of thing. They found themselves arrested. Philippi was a city that had been settled by former soldiers of the Roman army, and they prided themselves on their connection with the Roman Empire. And the charge that was brought against Paul and Silas on that occasion was that these were men who were from off, from another place, from Jerusalem, and they had come advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to practice. Now, that was a serious thing in a city that had been founded by Roman soldiers. And so Paul and Silas found themselves locked into prison in fetters. And if you're advocating customs not not, not lawful for Romans to practice, what that probably means is that you are declaring that there is another Lord. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas were doing. They were saying that Jesus is Lord, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us today, but in the first century to say that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar is not. That was sedition. And it was punishable by death. So Paul and Silas find themselves in fetters. Some of you have been with me to Greece. You've been to Philippi. You've been to the very place where the jail is located, where Paul and Silas were imprisoned. And they're locked in fetters, with the sword of Damocles, as it were, hanging over their heads. And they're singing. They're caged birds singing. And the jailer's listening to all of this. The jailer thinks they're crazy. Now, in that kind of a situation, when you're facing the prospect of death the next morning, most of us would certainly be praying But very few of us would actually be singing. But they were singing. And when you sing, you sing praises to God. They're singing praises to God. Now, if you know the story, you know that God intervened. A great earthquake shook the foundations of the place. Incidentally, earthquakes are not uncommon in that part of the world, in Philippi and so forth. But it's the timing of the event that's significant. It happens at this particular moment. We're told the lights went out. 
The lamps went out, we're told that the chains fell off, we're told that the bars came off of the doors, and the jailer rushed in, and when he saw that everything was darkened and that the the gates were off the cells, we're told he decided to draw his sword and kill himself, for he thought that all the prisoners had escaped. If you were a Roman jailer and you lost your prisoners, your life was forfeit. And so it was a dishonor to him that he had lost these prisoners. He gets ready to commit Harry Carey to kill himself. And all of a sudden from the darkness there comes a voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he knew the voice of Paul. And we're told that he came in and he fell on his knees before Paul trembling. And he asks what I always describe as the most direct question in all of Scripture. It's the question that every single one of us wants the answer to. What must I do to be saved? If this is what your God is capable of doing, what must I do to be saved? That's what we all ask, isn't it? What must we do? But Jesus turns the question around. Now, he gives an answer to the Philippian jailer. But on this occasion, basically what Jesus does is he turns the question around. He says, it's not the question of what must you do. The question is, what can you do? That's the real issue. The real issue is this. If any of you want to receive eternal life, find contentment, find peace, find joy, the question is not, what do I have to do? What do I have to pay? The question is, what can you pay? And Jesus' answer is, there's nothing. You have nothing to offer to God. Nothing. Not one whit. Nothing. Period. Nada. You have nothing to offer to God. Asking the question, what must I do? Or, what do I have to pay? Or, what is required of me, Lord, in order to find true satisfaction, true peace, true joy? Jesus said, that's like... A man who's confined to a wheelchair asking, what do I have to do in order to be saved? And the answer coming back, you've got to join the track team and do the high jump. Or the pull vault. Or the long jump. Even if the man wanted to do it, he couldn't do it. And that's what Jesus is saying to the crowds on this occasion. What must we do to do the works of God? He said, there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can do, and this is what Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on him. Now let me ask you the question, have you done that? Have you really believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, some people will say, well, yes, I I have, but they still think that there's something, be it ever so small, that they contribute to the process. I mean, I'm astonished at how many people who have been taught this from birth or at least for years still think that there is something that they must do in order to earn God's favor. Listen, folks, the question is not what you must do. The question is what you are capable of doing. And Jesus is clear. There's nothing you are capable of doing. Nothing. He came to do it all. And the only thing we can do is to cast ourselves on that. 
to believe in him, to believe in the one that the Father has sent, who is the true bread, who is capable of satisfying the deepest longings and hunger of our souls. Now, somebody might say, well, does that mean that there's no place for good works in the Christian life? Well, of course there is a place for works in the Christian life. Can you get into heaven without good works? The answer is no, you can't. You don't get into heaven unless you have a good character. But here's the difference. The works are not the means to your salvation. They are the consequence of it. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You were saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. But you have been saved from something, for something, for a purpose, that you might live good lives. Lives that are pleasing to God. Lives that glorify God. I'm going to read you one of the articles of religion from the Book of Common Prayer. It's article number 13. I don't know how many of you, um, be honest with me, and there's no shame if you've not, but how many of you have ever read the 39 articles in the back of the Book of Common Prayer? That is your assignment for this week. And I'm just going to call out randomly next week and find out somebody and see if you've actually done it. It'll take you all of 15, 20 minutes. But this is a statement of Anglican doctrine. This is what we believe. There are 39 of them. They're all relatively brief, basically a paragraph. <laughs> the interesting thing is that the longest one is on predestination and election. So only the elect will actually follow the advice and actually read. So we'll know who. <laughs> but article number 13 on page 870 in the 79 prayer book is entitled, Of Works Before Justification. That is to say, works that are done, good works that are done, works of compassion, works of mercy, whatever it may be, works that are done before justification. That is, before we come into a right relationship with God. And what does the article say? It says this, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace. Yea, rather, for that they are done not as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but that they have the nature of sin. What is that article saying? It's saying any good work that you have done any kindness, any mercy, any goodness, any generosity that you have shown towards somebody in need, those works that are done before you have placed your faith in Christ, they may be pleasing to your fellow man. They may be a benefit to society, but the article says they don't please God at all. In fact, because they are not done from the right motivation, that is, to glorify God, to please God, the article says we doubt not, but that they have the nature of sin. Prophet Isaiah said that all of our good works, all of our good efforts are but filthy rags. 
filthy rags. That's a hard word, isn't it? That everything we've ever done in our lives before we come to Christ, while they may be pleasing to our fellow man, and praiseworthy in the eyes of the world, they do not please God at all. The question that they asked was, what do I have to do? And Jesus says the question is not, what do you have to do? The question is, what are you capable of doing? And the answer is nothing. The only thing that you can do in order to be saved is to place your trust in the one whom the Father has sent. In Jesus Christ, wholly, completely, totally. And you'll find satisfaction for your souls. Have you done that? Have you done that? I'll share you a story from the Bible that maybe will help you to understand what this really is all about, what salvation is really all about, and how you are saved. It's from one of the shortest books in the Bible, the book of Philemon. That's also part of your homework for next week, is to read the book of Philemon. It's one chapter, so it shouldn't be hard. Philemon is a letter that Paul wrote to a man who was a wealthy individual. Philemon had met Paul on another. Philemon was from Colossae, but he had met Paul when he was in Ephesus. And as a consequence of meeting Paul while he was in Ephesus, he was converted to the Christian faith. But what happened was that he was a wealthy man. Uh, He had slaves. He had property. Now, when you think of slavery in the first century, don't think of it as slavery of people because of the color of their skin. That was not necessarily the case in the ancient world, although it sometimes was the case. Um, But slavery was everywhere in the ancient world. Fully half of the population was enslaved to the other half of the population. At any rate, Philemon was this man who had been converted to the Christian faith. He was a wealthy man. He was a propertied man, and he had slaves. And one of the slaves was named Onesimus. And Onesimus stole from Philemon and ran away. Stole some property and ran away and was living off of this property. Now, in the ancient world, that was a serious offense. Uh, To run away from your master and to steal from your master in the Greco-Roman world was something that was punishable by death. But Onesimus runs away, very much like the prodigal son, and he lives off of this wealth that he has stolen. But eventually he gets to Rome, where Paul, by this point, is imprisoned. Paul is in fetters. Uh, He's in prison, probably coming to the end of his life. And probably Onesimus, because he was a thief and so forth, had probably squandered all of that money and found himself in trouble and at least temporarily found himself thrown into jail where he comes into contact with Paul. Paul never met a man that he wasn't willing to evangelize. You know, they say Will Rogers never met a man that he never liked. Well, Paul never met a man that he wasn't willing to evangelize. And so he met Onesimus and he shared the gospel with him. And as often happens, when somebody hears the gospel, it cuts them to the quick. And Onesimus begins to reflect back over the course of his life and realize the terrible things that he's done. And and he knows he needs to make amends. 
And so he comes to Paul and he says, look, I, there's something I need to tell you. And I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I, I've, I've come to realize that Jesus Christ is my savior. And, and I really, I, I need to be obedient to those in authority over me. And I don't know what to do. I've stolen from my master. What should I do? I know I need to go back and make amends. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't have anything left. I've, I've squandered all the money. There's nothing I can give back to him. What do I do? And Paul says, you need to go back to your master, and I will send a letter. Because I know your master. I met him. He came to faith because of my ministry in Ephesus. You go on back to Colossae, and you talk to your master. And so, just imagine the scene. Onesimus is making his way back. I always imagine this magnificent Roman villa. Philemon's out there, one of the other servants sees Onesimus coming down the road and he says, oh, what's he doing? What's that bad apple back here for? And they go and they call their master and the master comes out and he says, it can't be him, but it is. And Onesimus comes up and he falls before Philemon and he begs for mercy. And Philemon says, look, you're a bad apple You've stolen from me. You need to pay the full penalty for what you have done. And Onesimus says, well, before you do that, let me give you this letter. And it's a letter from Paul. And he breaks the seal and he unfolds it and he begins to read it. And what Paul says is, my dear, beloved worker in Christ, Philemon, I'm sending back to you my dear son, Onesimus, who has been a blessing to me and I trust can be a blessing to you as well. He did you a great wrong, but I ask that you take him back as a brother, no longer as a slave. And then Paul says this, and whatever he owes, simply Add it to my account. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's come into the world. You and I were slaves to sin. We have robbed God of what rightly belongs to him. And we come back home and we have nothing to give the Father. What we deserve is punishment. What we deserve is death. And Jesus Christ says, whatever he or she owes, add it to my account. Hallelujah, folks, that's the gospel. And that's the only way to be saved. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this gospel of John the 20th chapter says that Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book, but these are written that we may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. There is no other way. The question that the crowds asked was the wrong question. What do we have to do? There's nothing they could do. 
So Jesus gave them that golden sentence, may it be written in our hearts, what must we do to find true satisfaction, to discover that bread which satisfies to eternal life? We must believe on the one he has sent. He alone is the desire of our hearts and brings true satisfaction. May we find all our joy and satisfaction in him. For it's in his name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.